0: I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with architect Sukhian Chan, founder of Singapore-based practice SCDA. Dukyan, it's so great to see you again. I mean, I can't even remember actually the last time I saw you, but it's it's been quite a year.
1: It has been. The last time we spoke, I think it was via Zoom.
0: That's Oh, that's true. Right. Yes, the we last time I saw you about, was um, on a television screen.
1: Sorry, about, yeah, on a television screen.
0: Yeah, it was indeed. So I was doing a little bit of research, as I like to do, before these conversations and I only just recently discovered that you were born and raised in Penang in a 19th century compound that's now UNESCO protected, which is quite remarkable. I never knew that that's where you grew up. Um, so I, I would love to maybe have you talk a little bit about what that experience was like your childhood. and. Um, you know, I've seen photos of your current home and it's it's quite different stylistically and architecturally. So I'd love to sort of understand the journey from growing up in an environment like that and how you've come to be living the way that you do now and maybe some of the influences that that experience might have had on you as a person, but also how it might have influenced your architecture.
1: So... Uh I was born in that compound because my maternal side, my mother was a Ku, and interestingly enough, my surname was a Chan, but the progenitor or the founder was actually a Chan adopted by the Ku family. So so I was, of course, uh, allowed to live in the compound. And these sorts of compounds, as I come to research when I was older as an architect, was set up to not only create a community of the new arrivals to Georgetown, but also sort of as a defensive community because there were plenty of gang wars. And I was living in one of those row houses and in the middle of this courtyard is the family temple, very gilded and very spectacular. And directly opposite it was uh, opera stage. So uh, my childhood was spent playing in a rather open but safe environment, which is the courtyard with all my cousins and extended family. It was uh, interesting and happy childhood I figured out.
0: And so how do you think that experience has shaped the way that you create architecture?
1: Okay, uh, the houses were shop houses and residences and they were long. Most of them were four to five meters wide and deep and they have multiple uh, courtyards of airwell. Some have two, some have four. And the particular one that I was raised, I remember clearly as a child, first of all, the whole ambience of light and darkness, right? And uh, whenever it rained, you know, and in Penang we have tropical downpours. Uh, I remember the smell of rain, the sound of rain hitting the granite. Uh, it's very clear in my mind, the goddess had a chain that flowed down into an urn. We, I still remember clearly it had lotus and some fish, then it overflowed into the courtyard. So it was an uh, interesting uh, visual memory. And not only that, when, when the rain came down, the discharge took a little while, so you have a momentarily a reflective pool, and then it subsided. So it was very experiential, and I'm quite sure it had impacted my thinking and, and how I was drawn to uh, phenomenology and design for the human experience.
0: So I'm curious to know whether you remember you know, a particular moment in time where you realised that you wanted to be an architect or do you think that it was maybe a slow process of realising and understanding that that's what you wanted to do?
1: I think it was a slow process, but I definitely knew what I didn't want to do. And during that period, uh, the choices were for, for Asian families, the professional vocations, like right? doctors, accountants, engineers, and by elimination, by the fact that I really enjoyed making things. You know, uh, I had model kits, building blocks. Sounds a bit of a cliche, but that's what I did. So I knew quite early, maybe around eight or nine that I would want to be an architect, even though at that particular moment my understanding of the profession wasn't fully uh, developed. Mm. But I knew I wanted to create things.
0: It's interesting. It seems to be quite a common experience, actually. <clears throat> I think that creative people often know that they're creative very early on. Um, so you started, or you studied, sorry, at Washington University, and then did post grad at Yale. How did you end up there? What was the thought process behind those particular schools? Was there anything about them that really attracted you to their architectural programs?
1: uh, Remember, this was 1979. I was uh, like 17. I had only seen America in movies. And all my cousins had gone to UK or Australia. And I said, no, I wanted to go to United States. And I spoke to my high school counselor. We had a very small vocational guidance library with books, SAT, and so on. And those days, I just bought through all the schools. I didn't know the geography, but I knew I wanted to architecture. And then Washington University seems like interesting choice because they had undergraduate uh, major in architectural studies. And I looked up the demographic, that had a good diverse international population. So um, I said, I wanna go there and they gave me a scholarship. So I, I, I eventually landed in the Midwest for four years.
0: Wow. And then, and then how did you end up at, at Yale after that?
1: Well, if I would talk a little bit about my undergraduate. Yeah. Know, because I think it was two different parts of the education, right? First was just, um, Broadening the liberal arts and, and not really doing architecture right away but sort of design studies and I was very influenced by a particular professor who I think is almost 100 years old today and he's still kind of professor emeritus and uh, my youngest son doing architecture at WashU actually interacted with him on a project too. So this was this guy by the name of Lastly Lasky, <clears throat> yeah, he was shaven ball dressed in the black kind of rope like kind of like uh, Bauhaus influence, yeah. like Oscar Scrammer or whatever, and he would talk a lot about the Bauhaus because he had went to the Bauhaus school oh, wow. right because he 's a hundred years old, so Gosh. his education was directly with the Bauhaus masters like Maha Naj and, and all these guys mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for for one and a half years i was in awe and uh, intimidated by this man who just would tell me to look at the qualities of corrugated cardboard or or metal or stone. And (laughs) so one day he told us, a small group of us, to cut a piece of six inch by six inch Douglas fir, fir block. And that's the kind of thing that that you remember to carry around my backpack with a chisel and to shape it. And try not to make anything but shape it to fit your hand and and let the inherent qualities of the nuts and grains of the wood come through. So um, whole week you carry a block. And then he will explain uh, not to fight materials, let the nature of materials come through, how do you work with the economy of means, Um, things like that, or to carry a a heavy construction material and try to move your body because it's all about movement, procession, dance, architecture, graphic design. So that was very formative for me, uh, the way I practice now to do holistic design, Mm. you know. Mm. And then, of course, after that, I had visiting professors from the UK, that introduced me to some of the other architects, turn of the century, Viennese architects, like Joseph Hoffman, Otto Wagner, the rest of them, uh, Louis Kahn. So undergrad actually was very formative Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, It it gave me the base. So when I got to graduate school uh, at Yale, it was more like the advanced studio. And what what I had contact with was uh, Interesting practitioners, you know, in the likes of Paul Rudolph. People in the studio at that time was Paul Rudolph, uh, Bota. Uh, I had a review with Philip Johnson. <clears throat> I had Robert Manchuri. So I had all these people. Uh, Hermut Yan, she's a Pelli. <clears throat> so it was a good time. The 80s, late 80s, mid 80s was a wonderful time for me to be educated, and I. What I got out of Yale was uh, the intensity of uh, of conversations and debate because I had Rob Creer, for example, who was an urbanist, right, and very traditional. He worked with Leon. And then I had some really uh, Italian rationalist <coughs> teachers, and we have this debate. <coughs> and and uh, and you know, even at that time, uh, your friends were chosen basis of your. Architectural leanings, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I somehow um, didn't ballot well. The studios I wanted, I didn't get. I ended up with uh, a lot of postmodernist studios and ended up in a classical studio as well with Thomas Gordon Smith, who later became the dean of uh, Notre Dame. So I then tried my hand at orthodox classical drawings, analytics even design mm. a classical off- law office building on the side, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And things, things like being in contact with these great practitioners and masters stayed with me. wasn't so much learning how to design as listening to their stories, because mm. <clears throat> some of them flew in from Europe occasionally and they'll have time over the weekend to go for a drink. Mm. Um, and they tell you, the perseverance that's needed mm. for them to actually make it. Like, what bothers them for each one of them? So that, that was very interesting for me to have to kind of drill down and examine deep inside what I actually believed in, you know?
0: Yeah. Did you ever stay in touch with any of those professors or lecturers from undergrad or postgrad? Have you yes, I,
1: uh, I, 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 I saw um, Lassie Lasky because I went back to the school and I went to his ex- exhibition opening and he claims he remembers me <laughs> and he said that he gave a car to my son but oh. well, I didn't think so. I think he'll somebody else probably <laughs> but I had a very nice deep conversation with this man who's almost 100 years old oh, wow. and he's still exhibiting, right? I mean this is the guy in the early 80s that kind of impressed me as a foreign student from Penang. Imagine that, right? right? Telling me in my first semester at his house how to eat, how to eat a certain kind of food, especially how do you really drink espresso, no sugar? You know, at that time, oh, wow. Americans were drinking filtered coffee. Right. So you can imagine the impression this, this, this uh, guy had on me. Just not just in design, but overall.
0: Yeah, it was almost like he was introducing you to another culture, Mm -hmm. I suppose, beyond television and movies, as you said, if that's all you had seen of the US before you arrived. But then you also got this European influence as well. Very
1: much European influence as well. And recently, not that recent, maybe three years ago, in a full circle, I got to collaborate with Cesar Pelli too, uh, before he passed on. And I made a trip back to his office Because I was doing the residential tower, they were doing the whole master plan Mm. uh, for a project in Japan, the the Mori building project. So but he was very warm and looked at me as a protégé and we took photographs, had lunch. It was nice. It was really nice um, to have that bridge.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like those years really were, as you say, very formative and very influential and have had a long-lasting impact on how you approach your work and your philosophies towards architecture.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the period. The 80s um, was a very diverse period full of different architectural thought processes. Mm. I would say between the 60s to the 90s, lots of isms, historicism, deconstructivism, structuralism, Mm. and it wasn't only just school, uh new haven where yale was was a train ride from new york city Mm -hmm. and and i took the train often to moma and all the met for exhibitions and i I saw that philip johnson curated a deconstructivist exhibition Mm -hmm. and i knew i didn't want to do that um and then i went downstairs was a whole viennese secessionist exhibition Mm -hmm. and i was just intrigued by the contemporaneous of their work. you know? mm-hmm. They're bridging between classical and, and actually constructivist kind of uh, details. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, also straddling between liking and not liking classical architecture. Mm-hmm. I had to tell you a story um, on my studio where uh, we went down to Robert Stern's office for a review and it was an addition of a, for me, a hapsichord museum, you know, to the Yale uh, Museum of Antiqui- Musical Antiquities. And I had done a very modern building, partially because I ran out of time. And <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even that review I remember, it's probably one of the most devastating review, but, y- you know, it's lessons in that. You know, yeah. I bring all my models and it came my turn in Bob Stern's office and Philip Johnson, you know. Wow. After I tried to present there was just dead silence. And there was just one question. What what was your historical precedent? What were you drawing upon? You know? And I was grasping for things because I said I didn't, uh, this is a process and I looked at Kant, Kant's museum, he looked at the corners and it was like next. Because at that moment, at that particular studio, you had to start by appropriating a part of history, and then mm. tell tell the jurors how do you learn from it? Do you distort it in a mannered way, you know, mm. the way Mick had done in the Laurentian Library? But you know what it did to me, even though it was a culture shock, was it gave me the gateway to appreciate um, architectural history.
0: Yeah,
1: you know and look deeper. I've done something that's out of my depth but I remember them well.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. So actually that leads me really nicely to my next question which is um, to have you describe your approach or your philosophy to architecture or your style or aesthetic however you would describe it. I I mean I've heard, I've read a few different descriptions of of what other people suggest your work is but I'd love to hear it from you.
1: Yeah, the stories I told you about my, my education understanding actually evolved into what I do. Then I worked for another class called Architect. And then uh, I came back here. This is where I came back to Asia, where my roots were. Full circle. When I went to visit my birthplace again. I appreciated it. And that's it's kind of allowed me to have an understanding because of my studies. The importance of figure-ground relationships, mm-hmm. uh, positive space, negative space, the, the great attributes of classical design, like procession, mm-hmm. um, axes, all those to me are syntax, mm-hmm. and syntax that need to be taught, and need to be learned, which I feel today we are too process-oriented. So, so we are, today we are very much conceptualized, conceptual, we're very conceptual and we're image driven but those days there were rules and there were rules and rules are safety rails for architects you know
0: Mm.
1: how does that affect me Uh, in in my approach it gave me the security of of language and then I started working on small houses when I started my company in 1995 and with each small house I tried to adapt to what's happening of that time, which is regionalism, right, kind of thing. And also I had visited places like Bali, India. Mm. So I was trying to refer back to, to something, which is very helpful, right? Mm. So I was constantly referring back to history and does that fit in compared to Bramante and Florence. So I had that. So, and it's valuable for me. And And when I started to study the grandmasters like I like Mies, Frank Wright, Khan, Kobu, mm. Everybody likes them, mm. but I understood they too were influenced by tradition because you know they they overlapped the Beaux-Arts. Mm. So that that interest in history and architecture actually resulted in me going something else that looked rather different mm. which is Something I coined Neotropical because of what I did uh, in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia, and that was to still to still try to impart the feeling of the space I felt in a good classical building which is uplifting mm. right I, I, I go to the pantheon you 're in awe not just the scale but the whole proportion yeah so that 's missing in a lot of. Uh, contemporary discourse because we're much more formal. Mm. Of course, I was influenced by everything else that's happening. But eventually, I think, through the years, it evolved into something that was my own.
0: So I'm, I'm curious to know whether you found some similarities. You talked about all of those, I think you said syntax, the sort of language of classical architecture, which is perhaps the procession and the axes and, and, and proportions. Did you also start to notice that in traditional Chinese architecture, when you went back to Penang, did you find any kind of similarities in the way that th- those spaces had been laid out or planned? Is that something that, yeah?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, the palaces, um, uh, uh, whether it's a f- Forbidden City mm. or like Ku Kong Sea, mm. yeah, very much so. There was a sense of always trying to create a hierarchy of outdoor rooms. Mm. and. Uh, Understanding uh, uh, figure ground, mm-hmm. uh, just as Bramante Tampiero in Florence. Mm-hmm. Um, so the difference, I felt, was there's a certain, uh, in Asian architecture, uh, in particular Japanese mm-hmm. and, and Chinese, the construction methodology is different. There's wood, mm-hmm. and, and especially Japanese architecture, there's ephemeral quality to it. Like the Imperial Palace, Katsura. So it was all these things. The thing that it did to me was the education allowed me to revisit Asian architecture, not totally uh, from an from international standpoint of having been educated overseas. So that's why I believe in the universality of uh, architecture, you know. Mm. Because if you can understand it, then you can communicate it. Right? Mm. and whether you like it or not, the Western architectural education has dominated the world. Mm. So when, when people in Singapore were having an anti-colonial mindset about architectural history and the British, I always say we are part of it, you know, and we all are schooled in it but it allows us to understand the precedence in Asian architecture better and then to be able to apply it to our work.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm always really curious about that. Architects from this part of the world that have gone to study in, say, Europe or the US and then coming home and how easily you can apply a very Western education to a very different part of the world where the climate, for instance, is you know one of the bigger differences, obviously. Um, it's always really interesting to, to hear how architects kind of come back and practice here and how they've adapted or developed that learning and that education and applied it to a very different part of the world. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so, so when and how did you eventually end up in Singapore then?
1: Oh, I had... I had worked for a couple of people in the East Coast, like the classical Arctic, Alan Greenberg, then KPF, Con Peasant Fox. And then I, I was, uh, it was time for me to come and reconnect, and I thought I would come back here for maybe three, four years. Understand more of architecture here, and then go back. I wanted to live in the US. Um, so I applied for jobs, and we, we had three offers. One was with the planning authority, of Singapore, the URA. One was in the university to teach, which they say you have to go back and get your PhD. And one is in private practice. Mm-hmm. And I eventually chose to to go into private practice. I mm-hmm. mean, after five years of designing many things that never got built, I I believe in five years I I, I don't think I had anything built, but I've done so many designs on paper, competitions and stuff mm-hmm. that. Finally, I decided to start my own studio in 1995.
0: So that was really the driving force for starting SCDA. Then,
1: yes, uh, the education of an architect is a long one. <clears throat> so I appreciated <clears throat> working with architect 61. <clears throat> uh, they were they were like the local counterparts to the star architects for a lot of their projects. I am Pei, Kenzo <clears> Tange. <throat> so the company would support and administer the contract, right? Mm. But it, with each, with each um, company you learn different things. So I learned a lot there. Mm. That really helped when I started my own practice.
0: So you, you founded SCDA in 1995. You, this is the 25 year anniversary. Have you had a chance to celebrate that? Well, I we mean... had
1: plans. We kind of missed our 20th. Mm. We said 25, so we had plans to do um, an exhibition here, travelling exhibition. We have plans to publish uh, a different kind of book that that would explain um, the, the the thinking behind our projects, because our first few books were coffee table glossy books, and we wanted the paperback accompaniment that explains in a more academic way, trying to break down each project into Elements like circulation, axes, landscape, etc, so like um, kind of Descartes or Durand, like like a taxonomy of parts that I, I still believe this taxonomy of parts is something that I could share with architects, the rest of it they can learn, you know, mm. conceptual images and so on and so forth, but I wanted to explain that. There's certain fundamentals that you need to understand. That's my belief. That's how I conduct my studio. When designers come in, I explain the work in fundamentals so that we can all communicate with the same language.
0: Well, you've certainly accomplished quite a lot in the last 25 years. I mean, you have now built a number of projects, some of them very high profile here in Singapore and in other parts of the world, and a number of awards, and you've got three offices, if I'm not wrong, across the world, not to mention a large family. Right? (laughs) How on earth do you balance all of
1: that? Yeah, I I think architecture has been my life and it's the constant that keeps everything together, and then uh, everything else organizes around it. Um, On the part of uh, family, um, it really wasn't a big issue, um, because my wife understands, and she's also in the design field, and a lot of my kids um, are self-motivated, and they go off early to boarding schools, and overseas schools, and we have quite an international, traveling lifestyle to keep up with family and friends. So my thinking a year ago that has changed a little bit was this globalization was never going to stop. Mm-hmm. And I never thought anything of getting on a plane tomorrow to go to New York and pack my bags three, four hours before and go. So. Anywhere I go, if I find something beautiful, piece of land somewhere, it never occurred to me that it's so far away. Mm. And that's how we've been doing our projects too. It's all over the world. We have done projects in 70-plus locations, cities in the world, you know?
0: So do you try to separate work and not work? Or for you, is it a very happy kind of blending all together? Is it just one big melting pot of your life? the work and the travel and...
1: Uh, I think all blends together. Uh, my my work as an architect and my love for hospitality, which encompasses uh, guest experience, food, wellness. I think all those are areas of interest. Uh, good wine, for example, right? Mm. Um, so, happily, I, I think it kind of blends in. And there are moments where you need to cut out time for something that's not related to what you do, but most of the time, I think, they they overlap.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's a great segue, because I want to talk about Suri now, um, because I think one of the things that I find really interesting about your practice is that you are one of few architects that I've met that has now kind of created this brand where you can develop self-initiated projects. Um, Did you always have ambitions to do this? Was it something in the back of your mind for a long time?
1: Yeah, I think my early uh, education of, of uh, design as this larger universe that encompasses different things, uh, product design included. It was natural for me that hosp- hospitality would come into the picture because when you do your own hotel, it's the vessel that allows you to put everything together, whether you're designing plates. Or designing a guest experience furniture architecture interior landscape it was the chance to pull together the orchestra you know and and that was the 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 chance came when my wife and i in 2004 went on a holiday and, and um we wanted to do a family home and that quickly became a hotel then the rest of it is really jumping in, not knowing how complicated it would be. <laughs> and then as it unfolds, you deal with each problem, Yeah, you know? Uh, and that same mindset uh, of, of, of finding the right place, when the opportunity presents, take it, you know, and then worry about how to solve it later. That's been kind of what guide my work ethic and what I want to do.
0: Okay. So, what, what is coming up for Suri next that you're able to talk about now? Because I know there's a couple of yes. potential... Well, uh,
1: the Suri brand represents to me uh, the, a lifestyle, uh, the softer aspects of architecture, the software. So, we have Suri Bali, that is the leading hotel resort, right? Then we have Suri Highline, which was a service uh, condominium with spa and some services. Uh, then, you know, I've kind of taken sites in areas where I thought it interesting, like in Niseko, which we were designed but not executed. And recently, we uh, got land in Wyoming. So they're quite desperate, you know, mm. Wyoming, Niseko. Uh, so Wyoming, we have the land, and, and then I'm also now closing in, finalizing, my birthplace, the Kukong Sea UNESCO, I'd like to do a heritage hotel. So that that is hopefully going to be done by first quarter, and that'll be my really passion project because I have a real uh, connection to my growing up, and I think it's it's a very appropriate project to come full circle.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Well, I've never been to Penang, so I'm. I'm you know i'm very i'm going to be very curious to see that when it does come about um, aside from that project which obviously is very clear why you would want to develop that side i mean obviously there's a very strong emotional and family connection to that property but I'm curious to know how, what the thought process behind selecting other land, you know, and, you know where did Wyoming come about? How did that happen?
1: Well, um, a few years ago, uh, it was very clear that, that to me, it's very clear that, that, that we were quite uh, focused on luxury. And I wanted to pivot, because I always knew, um, even though we did all our projects with Platinum, <coughs> Green Globe, of Check, Leeds. It, it wasn't apparent. So uh, uh, I think last year I started SEDA Lab, which is a group of my guys and myself trying to do something that's very different than SEDA. And we were pushing for off grid, uh, self sustaining small dwelling. So it, we came on the idea of. Um, the container, which is quite commonly used, but in in this case we said, containers should contain all the parts, solar panels, etc. In that container, ship it. When you open the container, you assemble it, and then you have this unit that's totally off grid. Uh, you can live anywhere. So Wyoming was a test case. There was a river nearby. It's huge nature and. Really, uh, we designed it for that site. So I'm looking for sites like Wyoming or Catskills, where the opposite of Suri, which is about food and luxury, this is still a new kind of luxury. This, This tender, as I call it, Indonesian for Tents, will be, this is my goal to set up, set them up along trails and along established, beautiful places. And the reason it's designed is that because it's, it's very light on its footprint and we hope to convince the national parks to have tenders. So that if you take a journey and you go, you can sleep in a tender and rethink what new luxury is today in terms of view, fresh air, activity. Mm. So I wanted to do that and then still keep Suri going because I think in some ways it, it will and it has influenced the way my studio design, you know? Interesting.
0: Well, I think that's a nice segue actually to my final question for you. I feel like I could chat all day, but um, I'd, I'd love to know whether you think that you and other architects and other designers have a responsibility to leave the planet maybe in a, as a better place than, you know, perhaps before we arrived. Yes, I
1: think architects all want to do that and architects are also responsible for so much <laughs> contribution to um, negativity to the environment and i've been on quite a few of these webinars and i always say <clears throat> architects cannot save the world <clears throat> architects need to collaborate we are a small part of a bigger equation <clears throat> when you have a serious issue so see like now architects come later we, we conceptualize and talk about uh, the city and the flight to the suburbs, but the engineers, for example, uh, and the scientists are trying to come with solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in the age of cholera, sewers were improved for engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe now engineers looking at ventilation systems. But what I always felt was mm-hmm. architects, all, we all want to because it's very clear, but we need to look at cues of what's happening rather than always try to pontificate what it is. If you ask me, I say not sure. <clears throat> but I can see, for example, uh, New York City, <clears throat> uh, my friends, my kids there, <clears throat> uh, the, the sidewalks broadened, streets narrow, <clears throat> um, people want more space to walk, dining outside, bike lanes. Some streets reduced to one to two lanes <clears throat> and then the whole city changes. Right? Mm. And that came because of restrictions and conditions, and that came because it was imposed sort of unilaterally on the whole city. Mm. So if architects take a cue from what's happening and reinforce that cue, and what we, uh, workers and social workers and other professionals, I think we can do better, you know? The kind of vision to impose on by a few people, I, I don't think it's going to solve anything. But I, I, I do know that all of us as architects, we want to live a better world, and, and most of us want to affiliate with green buildings, but the road to get there requires a lot of sacrifice of building less.
0: I think that's a really very powerful message. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's been really great chatting. I wish we had more time, but uh, it's, <laughs> there's never enough time. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you for being on the podcast. It's, it's always Thank a you. Pleasure. It's always
1: a pleasure uh, talking to you. Um, I felt like uh, we have been having conversations for a long time, and this is a continuation of our other conversations.
0: Yeah, it does feel a bit that way. That's right. It's really nice. Thanks, Sukian.
1: Thank you, Susie.